Hello, and welcome to Cherry Beckert's podcast for real estate and construction, where we discuss developing trends and market dynamics, as well as tax and accounting tips that could impact your business. Today, we are discussing the final segment of our Opportunity Zone Fund series. I'm Jason Horde, a real estate partner in our Nashville practice, and I'm joined by four of my colleagues for a panel discussion on the opportunities and pitfalls in your Opportunity Zone structuring. Our first panelist today is Doug Cates, who is a partner in our Augusta practice. Um, Doug, do you like to say uh, hi and uh, introduce yourself? Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm uh, Doug Cates in the Augusta practice, been with the firm, gosh, uh, more than 30 years and involved in, uh, in I'll call it the last mile part of uh, an opportunity zone and, and talking about how to invest uh, once you've decided to do it. Okay, well, great. Well, Doug, I know you've worked with uh, a lot of your clients and have uh, determined that, you know, opportunity zones are an, an excellent uh, tax planning strategy. Um, but how does an opportunity zone investment fit into some of your clients overall investment plan? Well, really, and again, my, my part in this is I'll call it the last mile. You've decided, you know, you've done your tax calculations. You've decided that an opportunity zone is a great way to uh, defer some tax and to get a good return uh, on an investment. And so we look at how then, what are the investments? What do you take your opportunity zone money and what do you do with it? And how do you allocate it out? How do you get a diversified uh, opportunity zone investment portfolio, which would be similar to a traditional stock and bond portfolio? Okay, so yeah, you mentioned the diversification. So, when investor has the gain money that they're uh, trying to defer into these opportunity zone funds. So if you could elaborate, they can, they're able to put that money into multiple opportunity zone fund projects. Oh, sure. And in fact, that really is the preferred method. Again, no one would take, um, you know, all of their money and buy one stock or one bond. And so in an opportunity zone investment, you want to do that same principle. Uh, Solomon said 3,500 years ago, diversifying your investments is a good idea. And it's been a good idea for 3,500 years. And so uh, what we do is look at a client's overall investment uh, portfolio and then look at the different kinds of projects and, and, and what kind of projects match the other a client's other investments and the risk that they're taking in other places. And again, design something that incorporates all of it into an overall plan. Okay, so, the, so there are options on the types of investments that that fund can invest in. Yeah, again, just a, just a kind of a case study right quick. Uh, we had someone who uh, had a big gain, took about uh, $3 million of that gain money. And uh, in today's market, uh, we helped him invest in about four different projects. One was a hotel project. Uh, one was a multifamily uh, project, uh, actually in Richmond, Virginia, where our home office is. And then the another was a mixed use of uh, some light retail uh, restaurants and then a condo tower on top. And so again, it goes back to diversification. You want to diversify geographically and you want to diversify into the type of uh, investment projects, uh, ozone projects that you want to uh, allocate your money to. Well, great. Well, I appreciate the insight, uh, Doug. Um, our next panelist is Catherine Baisley, a partner in our Atlanta practice. And Catherine, would you like to say hi and introduce yourself? 
Well, hi, Jason. Thank you. Uh, as Jason said, I'm Catherine Baisley, a self-proclaimed tax nerd who happens to be a tax partner in Cherry Beckert's Atlanta office. And I have over 20 years experience in the real estate arena. Okay. Well, uh, Doug has talked about, you know, getting into the investments and, and the way to diversify and things like that. But uh, once once into a fund, um, what happens when a member in a fund wants to um, withdraw? What are some implications of, of that happening? Well, building on um, another of Doug's little wisdoms, uh, nuggets of wisdom, and he says, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And we've all seen that change is something we need to be ready for. Um, so as far as the implications of withdrawing your money from your fund, it needs to be looked at from two lenses. The first is that of the fund. You know, how will this impact the fund? And the answer is that it really shouldn't impact the fund as long as the fund continues to meet the asset tests. And as a reminder, the asset test requires that 90% of the funds are invested directly into a qualifying business or property or 90% of the assets are invested in a qualified opportunity zone business, which has its own asset test to meet. Now, from the investor's point of view, the gain that was previously deferred, once it is withdrawn from that qualified opportunity zone fund, is no longer eligible for deferral and taxes will be due. If the gain was deferred in a year for which the taxpayer has already filed their tax return, they will need to amend that tax return and pay the related and there may be some penalties and interest related to underpayment of tax that would have been due had they reported the gain timely. Okay, so I assume that's a similar situation if the entire entire fund was set up, project failed, and so the the fund itself basically dissolved and everyone was, took their proceeds back. Uh, yes, unless they can if the investor is able to take their proceeds and reinvest into another qualifying fund within the prescribed time, they may have a potential opportunity there to okay. continue with their deferral. Okay, great. Well, a fund had some had some land and they got an offer on the land um, before any other uh, construction or project had started. Can that fund sell it? And what what does impact does that have on the deferral? So this is something that we're actually seeing quite a bit of. Um, property values have skyrocketed in opportunity zones as funds are looking to deploy capital, um, and some great offers are being made. And you know, it's it, no matter what, the fund is still a business opportunity, so people are evaluating this all the time. Um, and like we did with the first question, we need to look at this from two lenses, the fund and the investor. At the fund level, the fund will generate a gain, and the fund can either invest that gain into another qualified opportunity fund, or the fund can flow that gain back to the investors. From the investor's point of view, if the fund rolls the gain into another qualified opportunity fund, there's no impact to them. If the fund does not reinvest, and chooses to allocate the gain back to the investors, then the investors can either make a new opportunity zone investment, which will start a new clock on the deferral related to that gain, or they can pay taxes on that gain. Now their original investment, as long as the fund reinvests what the original capital was, 
that the investors put in and continues to meet the asset test, the original investment in that related deferral will not be impacted. Okay, great. Well, I know a lot of deals, you know, don't happen very quickly and um, investors will get Oz, get their gain proceeds inside of an Oz deal um, and then decide that they need or want to use those, um, those proceeds that are, we'll say, stuck inside of a fund for an extended period of time. Is there any way to loan some money, either back out of that or um, ways to make use of that capital? Well, this is a tricky one because in order for the fund to qualify as an as a qualifying opportunity zone investment fund, they have to meet the asset test that we discussed very briefly earlier. And if there is a way for the asset test to be met while still lending the money back to the investors and provided that there is a written loan agreement and stated interest rate, this may be possible, but it will most certainly be tricky. Um, and Daniel will actually be discussing debt. And as he discusses the implications of debt rate around opportunity zones, it'll help you understand why this is tricky in addition to the asset test issues the fund faces. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, next up we have Daniel Metzel. He's a partner in our Augustus, Augusta practice. And uh, Daniel, would you like to say hi and introduce yourself? Thanks, Jason. Yeah, uh, my name is Daniel Metzel. I am a tax partner in Augusta. Um, dabble in all sorts of industries, but spend most of my time uh, working with clients in re in the real estate and construction industry. Great. Well, as most of us know, when when you get an opportunity zone funds, there's a little bit of a little bit of a different way that basis is um, handled and established um, rather than a, a normal partnership. And a lot of times, debt and financing is used as a as a strategy uh, when the invested proceeds don't uh, cover the cost of the project. So, Daniel, I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on um, kind of base some basis issues and then some benefits and pitfalls of, of including uh, debt in an opportunity zone fund. Sure. Um, thanks, Jason. Yeah, this is a pretty complicated issue, um, so I'm going to do my best to boil it down in, in literally a couple minutes here. Um, but and, and I'm going to be talking about this through the lens of kind of the real estate development opportunity fund. Um, you know, that's what I'm seeing most of these opportunity funds uh, are, you know, real estate uh, developments. So when you're an investor in a qualf, a qualified opportunity fund, and you make that investment and defer the gains, your basis in your investment is zero. It starts out at zero because you have uh, deferred those gains. So that means that Without basis, right, we cannot take losses and we cannot, and any distributions received from that qual will be considered an inclusion event and taxable. Okay, so uh, this is something very important for the managers of the qual and the managers of the QOZB to uh, understand so that they're not uh, promising something to an investor of the qual. Um, you know, or setting the expectations uh, correctly. So, so we know those investors have a zero basis, um, and and they they were not allowed to take losses initially, and then they're not allowed uh, to have any distributions. But we know that qualified non-recourse financing does create basis. So, we we 
we would like to, you know, it it is very beneficial to put qualified non-recourse financing on the real estate so that your investors can then take losses or distributions um, from the qualf. But we, we need to wait until that happens um, if they have no other debt basis. If, if the investors in the qualf has, have guaranteed debt, guaranteed the debt, so it's recourse financing, that will create basis for them. But it's either they've got to have guaranteed the debt or the debt needs to be qualified non-recourse financing in order for them to take losses um, or receive distributions. So the timing of that, of when you put that uh, qualified non-recourse financing on the property is important um, to, to think about. Um, so a lot of issues there, but um, there's some opportunities and, you know, and some pitfalls there. Uh, the big opportunity is taking having the ability to take all these losses shelter a lot of income with depreciation that will um, ultimately never be recaptured because of our basis in the quaff is stepped up to fair market value after 10 years so a lot there a lot there in a couple of minutes but yeah well thank you thank you daniel that does uh very very involved with basis and, and debt um then i think you've also had kind of have dealt with some situations where there was land that was purchased prior to um, the end of 2017 and the uh, first proposed regs. Um, what have some things you've been working, have worked with your clients there, maybe regarding some ground lease structuring in order to be able to involve this in an opportunity zone fund? Yeah, so quickly, um, if, yeah, if you have, if you've owned land prior to 1231, uh, 2017, that is not, that will not be considered um a qualified uh business property for the asset test so um you know if if that land is inside a qozb or a coop it, it will not be part of the um it will not help you in your testing um but it is possible to lease land from yourself now that will also not be you have to take the present value of those lease payments um and that will be considered non-qualified opportunity to zone property, but that that value may be less. And if you time it right, you know, with the testing dates uh, at each six months, you may be able to lease the property, start your development and spend enough so that the value of that lease um, can be, uh, you know, is low enough so that you still meet your testing. So, you know, I've, I've helped a few clients, um, you know, build on property they already own using this structure. Okay, well, great. That's that's good to know because I know we've all had clients who were already in positions before the the Opportunity Zone Fund uh, regs came out. So that's that's good. We're going to move on to our fourth panelist, Rick Schneider, who is a partner in our uh, DC practice. So, Rick, if you'd like to say hi and uh, introduce yourself. Yes, thanks, uh, Jason. Hi, everybody. Uh, Rick Schneider. I'm a tax partner in our DC practice. Um, I also head up our Opportunity Zone Task Force and been involved with the entire Opportunity Zone rules and regulations uh, as they've been um, issued uh, and, and updated over the past few years, educating clients and assisting them with structuring deals in Opportunity Zones. Okay, well, great. Well, Rick, there seems to be some ambiguity on carried interest being permitted within Opportunity Zone funds as part of a qualified investment to which the tax preferential treatment, the 10 years out, um, is being tax-free. I know there have been some new rules which were recently issued by the IRS and Treasury on, on carried interest. 
So what, what if any opportunities are there for gaining this benefit for partners providing services within the Opportunity Zone funds? Well, Jason, I, I, the, it's been an interesting uh, area. Uh, IRS, when they first were issuing the final regulations, uh, they and Treasury noted that partnership interests for services would not be considered a qualified interest in an opportunity qualified opportunity fund. Again, qualified to receive those tax preferential treatment 10 years out being a tax-free transaction. Uh, however, at that time, there was still noted that there was an opportunity to structure around some of those uh, issues uh, and, and limitations um, where when you're looking at doing um, a potentially a carried interest above the quaff in a you know partnership above the quaff or even below the quaff as long as you know you didn't have one in the quaff now with all that being said now the IRS has now come out with proposed regulations dealing with carried interest and I think there's more opportunity because of these proposed regs particularly in regard to um, individuals who both invest a significant amount of capital as well as getting a promote interest on services they're providing to a fund. So there's, I think, some opportunity there where it would not necessarily get subject to the limitations. And this is true in these new proposed regs, especially with regard to um, uh, partnerships and, and funds that have what's called called 1231 gains. So this is typical when you've got property used in a trader business, such as rental real estate. And when you sell that property, you're going to have 1231 gains. So there is some more hope and opportunity to structure deals again, but it does require a significant, you know, significant capital being invested by the individual investor, along with receiving a promote on their services. So it uh, looks like we have some potential opportunities. And as we get into these proposed regs, and again, they are proposed, so, um, you know, we'll hopefully see more uh, flexibility and ease to be able to structure these. Okay, well, great. Well, Rick, we've made it all the way to the fourth panelist without bringing up the uh, pandemic. But uh, of course, the pandemic um, does continue to impact uh, the business economy. What relief has Congress or the IRS provided to Opportunity Zone funds and, uh, and their related business in, in regard to uh, COVID? Sure, sure. Well, we mentioned this actually in our first podcast of this series, uh, but it's worth uh, mentioning again. Particularly, I would say there's uh, two provisions, one dealing with substantial improvement of property, which had a 30-month clock that went with it, and also the working capital safe harbor for qualified opportunity zone businesses, which had a 31 month or potentially 62 month time period associated with deploying capital into the business. The IRS has provided relief in regard to those time periods, giving uh, uh, funds and investors uh, more time to uh, make those improvements to property by an additional nine months. So they suspended it for a nine month period in 2020. Um, and then also with the working capital, they gave an additional 24-month time period. So again, more flexibility to be able to deploy money into the particular projects and businesses. 
But most importantly, I would say, is the relaxation of the 90% investment standard for qualified opportunity funds. Again, for those funds that have failed to meet that standard on any semi-annual testing date, falling from April 1st to April 1st, 2020 to December 31st, 2020, um, due to reasonable cause because of the pandemic, there is no uh, failure or penalty imposed by the IRS for those funds. So this gives those funds the really uh, an ability to kind of get their ducks in a row, look at how they've invested, make sure they've got all their documentation in order, and really get themselves sort of set up to make sure that they are at the end of the year ready to meet that new investment standard and, and do so again on every same annual testing date uh, going forward. So good news for funds and investors. Yes, that is that is good. I'm glad giving that a little extra time there. Um, Rick, it also seems that there's the ability to have existing and startup businesses as qualified investments for Opportunity Zone funds. What are you seeing in this regard and, and what are the opportunities or pitfalls that investors and, and funds alike need to be aware of? Well, sure, yeah. So with the final regs and more clarity around being able to set up qualified Opportunity Zone businesses and how to meet the various tests, there is uh, starting to see interest by funds specifically to invest in various businesses. Uh, we've been working with a couple funds dealing with I'll call it product development companies. And so for those, actually, it tends to be a little bit easier to get the business inside an opportunity zone, set up, you know, maybe lease some space, set up their manufacturing operations to produce the product and be able to um, meet the tests that would apply to qualified opportunity businesses uh, as it relates to that activity. Um, and then we've also seen maybe a little bit more challenge with regard to some startup businesses, particularly in the tech area. Um, we've had a couple clients where we're looking at doing some software development and trying to see if they can get that into an opportunity zone. Um, easy to get the business located in the zone, a little more challenging to have the revenue associated to activities within the zone. Typical within those types of companies is you've got various individuals providing development of software, but they're all oftentimes remote. They're not uh, necessarily in an opportunity zone and the standards for the revenue testing for qualified opportunity zone businesses is kind of based on uh, wages and or uh, hours of employees working within an opportunity zone. So that can be a little bit more of a challenge, but um, we, we do want to remind people that the, particularly for those kind of tech startups, there is another provision that's very similar to Opportunity Zone rules dealing with um, investing in a company such as that and being able to defer or actually uh, not pay tax on the gain from the sale of your stock investment um, under another rule called Section 1202. So there is some hope there if you can't meet the rules for an Opportunity Zone business, then maybe you can meet it under the, the 1202 rules. So um, that that's kind of what we've been seeing in terms of uh, the types of businesses that uh, funds are investing in. Okay, well, great. Well, thanks, for, thanks for that extra little little nugget there. I'd, I'd like to really thank all, all four of our panelists, uh, Doug, uh, Catherine, Daniel, and, and Rick for, for sharing your time and, and your knowledge and experience in, in Opportunity Zone funds. 
And we'd like to thank all our thank you all for uh, joining us today as we close out our Opportunity Zone Fund series. If you missed any of the previous podcasts, please visit our website at cbh.com to listen. In the five previous episodes, we discussed the types of assets a fund can own in episode one, real estate specifics such as substantial improvement rules and triple net leases in episode two, the requirements necessary to establish and operate a qualified opportunity zone business in episode three, tests for operating a QOZB in episode four, and finally, optimizing alternative capital sources in episode five. If you have any questions about anything covered, please do not hesitate to reach out to a Cherry Becker professional. And again, we thank you for listening.